Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show and happy Tuesday. It's debate week and it's happening tomorrow night. In the meantime, President Biden went to Maui finally last night with his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, and he made it about himself again. Seriously, there's something wrong with the president. This is not normal behavior. He, he started talking about a kitchen fire he had in his home. I'm sorry, you can't make it up. Uh, how he could relate to these people who have now, about the latest tally I heard was 115 dead. I mean, there are almost 1,000 still missing, including children. And he wants to talk about his kitchen fire years ago and how he can totally re- relate to what they're going through. People are about to reelect this guy. Half the country wants to reelect him. Okay, Um, we're also going to get into a story today that I've been obsessed with the past week, but we haven't covered yet. Have you seen all the news about the real life family featured in The Blind Side, the hit book and movie? Sandra Bullock won an Oscar for her portrayal of Leanne Tui, um, the family that took in Michael Orr, and he went on to become a big football star in the NFL. Well, they're basically in a divorce. They're in a very ugly fight. And um, there's plenty to talk to about that. Our guest is fired up about that story and much, much more. Jason Whitlock is the host of Blaze TV's Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And he's also a columnist at The Blaze. Jason, great to have you back. How are you doing? Awesome, Megan. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. All right, let's kick it off with presidential politics since there's an excitement in the air as we get ready for the first big GOP Debate tomorrow night in Milwaukee, hosted by Fox News. Uh, Trump will not be there. And now we officially know who will be there. Let me see. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, DeSantis, Haley Pence, Scott, Christie, Hutchinson, Burgum, and Ramaswamy, who will not be there. Larry Elder, Will Hurd, Michigan businessman Perry Johnson, uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. Most people didn't even know that those people were running. They most likely will not be missed. Uh, As I mentioned, Trump will not be there. And that's the true, you know, elephant not in the living room. Um, The latest Des Moines Register NBC News poll going into this debate, and of course, Iowa votes first, uh, the first of the nation caucus, shows that Donald Trump remains ahead, though by a slimmer margin in Iowa than he has nationally. The CBS poll yesterday put him at 46 points up. Over DeSantis, who was the next nearest competitive, 46 point lead. 
This one shows him with a 23 point lead over Ron DeSantis, 42 to 19. Um, so still absolutely stunning and crushing, but not quite as crushing as he has nationally. And the question is, what are the stakes now for the for the other candidates going into tomorrow night without the elephant being there? Jason, what do you think? What do you think about it? Well, I'm going to start. I'm going to answer a little different than the question you asked. I want to start by saying that I think the GOP is making a mistake by not having Larry Elder at the debate. And I'm not saying that because I'm some Larry Elder surrogate. I'm saying that they're blowing an opportunity. Larry Elder is talking about issues as it relates to the black family and the destruction of the family overall in America that needs to be front and center because I think there's an opportunity here. Larry made a bunch of news last week in an interview he did with the Breakfast Club with Charlemagne and DJ Envy, very popular uh, radio show uh, for black, younger black people. And, and Larry Elder crushed these guys. And if anybody watches the hour long interview, you can see that there's a real opportunity for, the, for Republicans to make headway with Black voters. And that's why I think it would be important to have Larry on the debate stage. He just just absolutely destroyed these guys on The Breakfast Club. And you could hear a conversational turn among Charlemagne and DJ Envy and some woman that they had on name, I think Teslin or whatever, where they are openly discussing their despite that they don't like Joe Biden, that they don't trust the Democrat Party. Now, they're rigged and they have to crush or uh, go against Larry Elder. But but I think when I watched the interview, I was like, oh, my God, it's finally happening. Black people's eyes are opening that the Democrats are fraudulent. And, and I just think Larry's important to exposing that conversation. So I wish that there was some way uh, for mm -hmm. Larry to participate in this debate. It's a great That's opportunity amazing. for Republicans. He single-handedly switched Dave Rubin uh, over from, yeah. you know, a lefty <laughs> to the righty, or at least somebody like you could see Dave Rubin's eyes come open with like, oh my God, what do you mean? Because Larry yeah. Elder is a fact machine. He's a yeah. fact machine. And what I love about the way he persuades people is he doesn't just use sweeping rhetoric. In fact, he uses no sweeping rhetoric. He just provides the evidence. He's got the data at the ready on any controversial issue. It's the way to win arguments. I wish more in the GOP field would do this, but they say he didn't qualify. I think he's disputing that. So maybe yeah. something could happen before tomorrow night. Yes, he, I agree. He would be a great addition. But in any event, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that you tell me, but I think no one's going to take out Trump just by talking about him in absentia. But I do think everyone on the stage tomorrow night will have much to gain, right? Like if Ron DeSantis could have some sweeping moment or some pummeling moment of one of the opponents up there, it could help him, right? He's been sort of floundering um, as the guy who was supposed to be the standard bearer. And now every piece of news about him since he launched has been terrible. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, he's done very well for himself, but, you know, he could be hurt tomorrow because the only reason nobody's laid a glove on him is no one's tried. No one's really cared about him yet. Right. But now he's going to be under the national spotlight and he could get hurt. Uh, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, they haven't made any impression, really. So it's their chance to do something. Chris Christie, he's got to decide who's his focus. Is it Donald Trump still 
Or are you going to go after Ron DeSantis now that he's out there? He's technically the leader, though not by much, of those who are going to be on stage. So what, what would you like to see tomorrow night? Well, I think only two people matter, Vivek and Ron DeSantis. And DeSantis matters the most. But the guy that in this election cycle may have the most impact other than Donald Trump is Vivek, because I, I think he's revealed a strategy that I wish Ron DeSantis had embraced. Don't attack Donald Trump. There's no win there. You're not, as, as someone who would have to be considered a Trump supporter, you're not going to move me off Trump. Uh, by attacking him. I, I've heard all the attacks. I don't care about any attack. I care about whether or not there's any other candidates, any other people who can help Donald Trump uh, drain the swamp and, and get rid of politics as usual. And that's why Vivek has landed so strongly with me. And I don't think anybody's going to lay a glove on Vivek because he's going to talk circles around all of them. I think this guy, young guy, is brilliant and unique and has chosen the right uh, strategy of like, he's not wasting time attacking Trump. He, he, it's a mistake. Uh, and so Vivek, to me, is a strong candidate to be a vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump, part of Donald Trump's cabinet. If Donald Trump wins the nomination and wins elections or, or and wins the election, Ron DeSantis, if he had not attack Trump in any way, don't get baited into an attack with Trump, and just had focused on, hey, look, some people talk a good game. I actually execute a great game. Here's what I did in Florida. Here's what I'm about. Here's where I think the country needs to go. But I, I would have stayed away from any attack of Trump, Trump supporters. What do you call, what do you call them? Something about listless, listless vessels. Wrestle? Well, maybe, maybe yeah. not. We'll play the soundbite and get into it in a second. But you don't, all you don't of like the No, I just no because there's just no win there. Donald Trump, despite all of his flaws, and he's got plenty of them. He, he's he's like he's been jumped into. I, I'm gonna give you a gang analogy, but he's been jumped into the gang, and you know he he's. I don't care about his flaws. I don't care about his when he misspeaks. I don't care about mean tweets. All I care about is like, hey man, this guy has taken a lot of hits for people like me. And, and you know, I, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not crying broke or poor or any of that. I'm not. But my, my background, my worldview is very working class because of my parents. My mother was a factory worker. My dad was a factory worker before he opened a bar, basically for working class Black people. And Donald Trump's America First, Bring Back Manufacturing Jobs, resonates and speaks with me and the MAGA crowd resonates and speaks with me. I, I'm tr And again, this is where I think the Republicans seem reluctant to be, become totally the party of the working class and really go after that and just be comfortable with that brand and with that constituency. And if they did, they could bring b more black people into the tent uh, if they embrace that fully. And, and, and that's what I think Donald Trump has done, despite all the criticism and all the claims that he's a racist and he's this and that. And that's all silly talking points that just don't land and resonate with anybody. So I, I would just avoid attacking Donald Trump. That's not saying he's flawless. 
but that is saying, hey, the guy has been jumped into the gang. He's taken all the beatings. Uh, he He's one of us, for better one or worse. Um, one of the reasons people continue to love Trump is he's funny. He's he's genuinely funny. He makes you laugh. And somebody who makes you smile and laugh is hard to really detest. The Democrats don't seem to understand this. Um, I'll give you one example. So he, in connection with this Georgia indictment, was forced to post bond. And it's just so absurd. The reason they want you to post bond in a criminal case, if they want you to post bond, is so that you don't flee so that you don't, you know, abscond to Mexico or Brazil and never return for trial. The absurdity of suggesting that's what Trump is going to do in Georgia is apparent to anybody who's got you know, a brain in their heads. So he sends out this post on his truth social network. I've got to read the whole thing. It's just so good. He writes, um, okay. The failed district attorney of Fulton County, Atlanta, Fannie Willis, insisted on a 200,000 bond from me. I assume, therefore, that she thought I was a flight risk. I'd fly far away, maybe, maybe to Russia, 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 share a gold domed suite with Vladimir, never to be seen or heard from again. Would I be able to take my very understated airplane with the gold Trump affixed for all to see? Probably not. I'd be much better off flying commercial. I'm sure nobody would recognize me. <laughs> He's exactly right. Like, what are they? They're talking about mugshotting him down Atlanta, bail so he doesn't abscond. This is a joke, right? But the fact that he can mock that what's happening to him, you know, a criminal case that actually could see him behind bars is part of the reason why people are very loyal to him and love him in part because of these indictments. That latest CBS poll I mentioned reflected people say, I support him because of these indictments. The more they persecute him, the more I'm loyal to him. The more rocks they throw at him, the more they pile up and he can stand on top of those rocks and become even bigger. This is why I just think he has a, they, the GOP has a great opportunity through Trump to really break the stranglehold that the Democrat parties had on black voters because he's just becoming more and more relatable the more they persecute him. You know, not me, but a lot of black people love to lean into their victimhood. And they can resonate with the fact like Donald Trump's being unfairly persecuted and treated here. Come on. I mean, everybody can see through uh, these joke indictments and these very politicized indictments. And so his persecution, I think, is just making him more likable, uh, more embraceable. And he's just increasing my it's increasing my loyalty to him. Mm. Okay, now let's spend a minute on Vivek. Um, You mentioned he's a sort of rising star within Republican politics. He's never governed. He's only 38, but he's made a billion dollars or so uh, in the pharmaceutical industry as a young lawyer out of Yale Law School who just had smart ideas and knew how to execute them. This is his first foray into politics, and he's been going a different route. He will go on adversarial media. You know, he'll speak to anybody. He'll go on, you know, leftist TV programs and so on. He's been caught, caught, you know, seen on camera rapping, Eminem, you know, sort of seems younger and a little bit more vibrant. Um, However, I believe he misstepped with the following video, Jason Whitlock. You tell me he put out a tweet yesterday that he was doing debate prep. And this is the video. Sir, he is not wearing a shirt. He is playing the tennis. 
He is naked from the waist up. I got problems with this, Jason. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the way. I tweeted back at him, Vivek, where is your shirt? <laughs> I, I think that Vivek and Robert Kennedy are trying to message to the world, hey, look, these old guys, you need someone young and vibrant and and we are it. We're still in shape. We're not Joe Biden that clearly needs to be on a walker. Uh, and, you know, to some degree that Vivek taking a shirt off and playing tennis is as harsh a criticism as he's going to level at Donald Trump. It's like, yeah, Trump goes around on a golf cart and plays golf, but, you know, can he do this? That, that's about as harsh a criticism as he's going to have. But all these unconventional things that Vivek is doing, I like. Because, again, I don't like politicians. I don't like career politicians. I'm instinctively uh, suspicious of them. The only thing that's ever interested me about Trump was that he was not a traditional politician. He's very uh, authentic. He doesn't act presidential. And and so you go into a process and hey, I want him to act presidential. But but the politicians have become so fake and so off putting to me that I like the unconventional. And so Vivek, Robert Kennedy and Donald Trump are unconventional candidates uh, that didn't, you know, again, Trump had no political experience before becoming president. RFK, I don't think, has held political office and Vivek hasn't. I like that. I would submit to you that this is more of a shot at Chris Christie than at Donald Trump. Sorry. All right. So DeSantis, um, you mentioned it and we sort of glossed over it, but we're going to get to it now. So he has been uh, on getting raked over the coals by Trump supporters for a comment he made uh, to Will Witt, who's been on this program drinking his raw milk. Um, we like Will. And DeSantis made a comment to him that I don't I know the Trump supporters don't like it. I don't see it as untrue. I'm not sure that I'm taking it the same way they are. However, CNN got raked over the coals by uh, DeSantis supporter Ken Cuccinelli. He runs the DeSantis Super PAC for it. I'd love to get your take on it. So here's how we're going to do it. I'll play you the full the full soundbite because we here at the MK show do not take the clips out of context. Doesn't doesn't mean they're not controversial in context. We'll let the viewers decide. But here is what DeSantis said that's leading to some trouble. There'll be people uh, who are huge Trump supporters, like in Congress, who have like incredibly liberal left wing records that that's really just atrocious. And yet they're viewed as by by some of these folks as like as like really, really good. Then you have other people, you know, like a congressman, Chip Roy, who's endorsed me, Congressman Thomas Massey. These guys have records of principle fighting the swamp that are second to none. And yet they will be attacked by some of these people. And, and called rhinos. And ultimately, a movement can't be about the personality of one individual. The movement has got to be about what are you trying to achieve on behalf of the American people? And that's got to be based in principle. Uh, because if you're not rooted in principle, uh, if all we are is listless vessels that's just supposed to follow, you know, whatever happens to come down the pike on Truth Social every morning, th that's not going to be a durable movement. OK, so he said it in the context of ripping on some congressmen who he thinks are to, you know, go with the wind. Whatever Trump says is right, as opposed to principled conservatives. 
Um, that that's that's a way in which he said it, but it sounded too sweeping for many MAGA supporters. Then you get CNN uh, in an interview with Cuccinelli, right, which which you'll hear the way that they set it up and him calling them out in soundbite three. Governor DeSantis talked about Trump supporters. He used the word words listless vessels. But I he wasn't play, talking about on, Trump supporters. Hold on. I'm going to play it for everybody and then All you right. can go ahead. Let's listen. A movement can't be about the personality of one individual. If all we are is listless vessels that just supposed to follow, you know, whatever happens to come down the pike on Truth Social every morning, that, that's not going to be a durable movement. Everybody just saw there that there was a cut. You cut from the beginning of that quote to the listless vessels. You just did what the problem is. Hmm. I, I'll, I'll give you my take and then I'll, I'll listen to yours. I, I think that was a bullshit cut by CNN. I do think people can they're smart enough to make up their own minds on whether he was speaking about all MAGA, all Trump supporters, or whether he was speaking about it in the context of these congressmen who they decide are rhinos only because they dispute some of Trump's positions. Right. Like he was saying in the setup, you've got these congressmen who they think are the true, you know, true conservatives who will just do whatever Truth Social says. And then you've got others who are principled like Massey, who are great, like committed conservatives who will get called rhinos just because they don't follow Trump. And he was saying you can't build a movement on on that. You can't just be a listless vessel who goes along with whatever you read on Truth Social in the morning. To me, it seemed more focused on the people who are following these congressmen. But I could be wrong. In any event, as a newswoman, I would never have set it up the way they did on CNN. I think Cuccinelli was right to call her out. CNN's always looking to make any Republican look the worst possible, uh, whether it's DeSantis, Trump or whomever. But I have seen the the ire of MAGA online over the past few days in response to this clip. So having seen the full thing, how do you feel about it? Uh, I think in the clip you played and the clip CNN played, I think has been fair to Ron DeSantis. I interpreted from the clip, the full clip you played. When you start saying, hey, we're not just loose listless vessels waiting for whatever comes down on true social. What you're saying is, hey, we're not listless vessels just taking our commands from Donald Trump. And and so I get why MAGA people are upset and saying, oh, this guy's arguing that we can't think for ourselves and we have this idolatry with Donald Trump. And and, and some people do. But but I think Ron DeSantis is is forgetting he signed up for politics and to be a politician. And that when you want to provoke a movement uh, to put America first, to drain the swamp, as a politician, sometimes you do have to morph yourself into a representation of that movement. And it, it, it so it's going to be about more than just your principles and values. It's going to be how voters see you and connect you to the movement. And so th- there's just a deep belief among MAGA supporters that, that, that Trump represents the movement. He's the only one who's willing to take these bullets uh, f- for representing them and their voice. Uh, I, I like Ron DeSantis. I like what he did in Florida. But he wants to detach himself a bit and, hey, I'm not 
the face of a movement. And, and it's like he wants to live in a safe space where Donald Trump is playing the thing very high risk. And, and, and I say this in all seriousness. And, and, and it's like, hey, look, politics is a blood sport. You know, presidents get assassinated. Presidents get shot at. Presidents have uh, their reputation smeared in reprehensible ways. And, and so to me, what I hear from Ron DeSantis is uh, he wants a little distance. He wants to play it a bit safer. He doesn't want to be seen as the face of a movement that is clearly scaring the establishment and has the entire criminal justice system and this lawfare that's being played against Donald Trump. Let me ask you, let me, let me, because Ron DeSantis, he's many things, but like running to a safe space would not be on my list for him. I mean, he's, you know, his Parental Rights and Education Act, which he's taking so much flack for down in Florida. He signed a six week ban on abortions, which most of these other Republicans criticized him for. Um, He's taken on, you know, fight after fight down in Florida against these sacred cows like Disney's one of them. He doesn't seem like somebody who's not afraid to fight. COVID, he fought. He was aggressive. He was more aggressive than Trump was. So he he's not he's not a safe space guy. You could you have problems with DeSantis, but safe space is not really apt in my view. I do think he's not afraid to fight, but I don't think he wants to be in every fight. And I don't blame him. If I had two young kids and a young wife, there's a level of the fight that I might be more resistant to than an 80 year old man who's, you know, most of his kids are grown. Uh, and look, whether it's true or not, Trump has created the impression that he's willing to pay whatever price there is for upsetting the establishment. And American history says the price for upsetting the establishment could cost you your life. And, and so there's a belief among Trump supporters, he's willing to pay that price and and I'm not sure if uh, Ron DeSantis is, and that's not a critique of him. That's like, hey, man, this dude's a father, and he takes being a father seriously. He's got young kids. And, and so when I look at RFK, this is what I like about RFK. I've had him on the show. I've seen him do interviews. RFK knows the price. Having lost his father, having lost his uncle, he knows the price that he could pay by taking on the military industrial complex, taking on the CIA, the FBI, things. He knows what the price is and he doesn't care. And so I respect that. And it don't, we can't get upset that there are other working class MAGA supporters that are like, yeah, Ron's not all the way about this life. He's a great politician. He's done great things in Florida. He certainly is courageous in comparison to most politicians, but we're living in a very unique time uh, where where the state, again, you have a former president that's had four bogus indictments brought against him. Mm-hmm. The Democrats seem intent on putting him in jail. And, and, and it just feels like to MAGA supporters and to me, and again, I like Ron DeSantis, would have no problem if he was president of the United States, but I'm not sure if he's all in the way okay, Trump is get all it now. in. I get it. Here's here's all I'll say. Oh, just FYI, uh, DeSantis has three three young kids. But um, I think what you're getting at, and I actually think what DeSantis was trying, though, inartfully to get at, 
is the difference between MAGA and conservatism, you know, MAGA and the old Republican Party, right? Like I can I believe it upsets Ron DeSantis when you call him a rhino. He doesn't like that. He doesn't think that's true. He thinks he's a true Republican conservative. And I don't think he would say he's MAGA, but he is a conservative Republican. And so he doesn't like when somebody like uh, Thomas Massey or somebody, you know, like him, like DeSantis is dismissed as a rhino. And he's trying to say, like, these guys in Congress don't deserve that label. They're probably in his mind a proxy for him. That's what he's trying to say. I am not a rhino. And that's a bullshit criticism. But you're kind of like, okay, you're not a rhino, but you're not MAGA. And you shouldn't be running trying to convince us you're MAGA. We're not going to elect you for being MAGA. We can see you're not MAGA. I mean, is that basically it? Yeah. And that is my standard. That's why I like Vivek. He's not afraid of the MAGA label. That's why I like Larry Elder. He's not afraid of the MAGA label. The Republican Party, just like the Democrat Party, there are those of us that believe they must die in order for America to be safe. The establishment, the typical politics. This, this is what the Trump supporters believe, and this is why his support is so strong in the polls. Keep going. Yeah, it's got it's got to go. They, they've been put. They've been making just as much, if not more, money from insider trading and being bought off by China as everybody else. And so, yeah, he wants to defend the Republican Party and and rhinos or or, or what? Not even rhinos, but just the Republican Party and conservative. I don't want a conservative. I don't want a Republican. I want someone who honestly wants to fix things. I want someone that's not afraid to say I'm MAGA. If, if I'm willing to say, uh, and again, there's no true consequences for me, but again, when I see people languishing in jail over January 6th and the price they're paying for uh, supporting Donald Trump and for wanting uh, our, our elected officials to actually listen to the will of the people, they're willing to pay a price. If Ron DeSantis, again, there's a movie, I've, I've made this comparison probably for the last year about Donald Trump. There's an old movie called Blood In, Blood Out. It's a gang movie. And and that that's where we're at right now. It, it's, it's blood in, blood out. Uh, if you're not willing to go all the way in, I really don't want to be bothered with you. Mm, that's fascinating. I, I've I think like some of this is reflected in the latest polls and the latest numbers that continue to confuse uh, hardcore Republicans who don't like Donald Trump. You know, they would vote for him, but they don't want him. Never mind the left. Uh, Just to go over a couple of them, because we haven't yet gotten to them. The CBS poll I referenced, Trump has 62. The next closest is DeSantis with 16. It's a crusher. It's a 46 point lead. Um, Top reasons for considering Trump. Things were better under Trump. Ninety nine percent say that fights for people like me. Ninety five percent believe that um, feel what they tell you is true. Seventy one percent say we, they feel that way about Trump and um, only sixty three percent say they feel that way about their friends and family, that they tell you what is true. Now, this has people on the left like Joe Scarborough, who once called himself a Republican, utterly confused, saying it's a cult. It's a cult. It's a cult. You know, they believe Trump more than they believe their own family members. Um, but it's, it's much more complex than that. It's, it's like, I don't know if truth is actual truth or if it's just a surrogate for like Ben Shapiro was saying yesterday, authenticity, like it's, 
they don't necessarily believe everything Trump says. It's just that they feel like he is a reliable messenger who will fight for the principles he says he'll fight for. Like he more than anybody else really will try to fight for these things, whereas others will cave, Uh, whether it's China, whether it's the wall, none of which was perfect, none of which was perfectly executed when he was president, whether it's standing behind conservative justices and so on. They just believe him more than they believe the other candidates. And I don't know what's wrong with their family members that they're not believing. (laughs) But here's Joe Scarborough. Hold your thought, because I want to play Scarborough's reaction to this just to get a flavor for what the other side sees when they see that poll. There are really no good answers, uh, except, you know, the question is, is it a cult? Nearly 30% more people blindly follow their cult leader, Donald Trump, than their own religious leaders. That's like, please, don't tell me about how this is a Jesus thing. It's not a Jesus thing. It's a cult thing. The religious leaders had, uh, they believe, 42% believe what their religious leaders tell them is true. Again, versus Trump's 71%. Go ahead, Jason. Well, as it relates to the religious leaders, I'm glad you brought that up. It, 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 that's because religious leaders have sold out and, and they don't stand on biblical values. They don't stand on truth. They, they opened up their churches uh, to the whole LGBTQ pride movement and all that. And so the, the religious leaders have grown away their credibility uh, with, you know, a, most of the, a great segment of their uh, congregation. But, but I, I just think that people, Joe Scarborough, Ron DeSantis, everybody's going to have to deal with where we are right now there's a set of values that Trump seems to represent and and a, a set of values that really connects with the American people that we are in dire, dire times when 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 teachers are clearly trying to groom kids into a sexual lifestyle when when our borders are wide open. And they're just allowing people to come in at at a record numbers. We're at a chaotic time where we're willing to overlook because where where Trump is really weak with me is on the COVID vaccine and and Operation Warp Speed. But I have to, and and trust me, it really, really bothers me that that he won't back down off the vaccine and, and course correct and perhaps admit that he's wrong. That's his ego. It really, really bothers me. And so I, I get that criticism of some people of him about that. But he's the only guy that I authentically believe would try to do something about illegal immigration, would try to do something about uh, children being groomed uh, in schools, will try in some ways to bring manufacturing jobs back here to America so that working class people have access to the American dream. I I stand on the shoulders of factory workers. All the success that I have is on the back of my parents and their friends as factory workers, as working class people. And that's all been taken away. And not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody uh, wants to have you know, w- wants to have some suit and tie job. There has to be a way for people like my parents and their friends 
to provide for their kids. And that's all been taken away. And we think, or I think, Donald Trump is the only person that's really committed to fixing those problems. And so I'm going to have to swallow his ego as it relates to the COVID vaccine Mm -hmm. and and grit my teeth and and take it. But, you know, this whole thing that it's a cult. No, man, it's a bunch of people have figured out that most of the people in the movie, in the media, have sold out. They've been lying to us ever since Kennedy was assassinated. And 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 people are just tired of it. And so Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski get on TV and they're all upset. Well, we can't control what the public thinks and, and we can't break the the ties and the loyalty they have to Donald Trump. It's because we figured you're liars and you, you don't have our best interests. You've been bought and paid for, you're millionaires, you don't care about working class people. Yeah. Screw you. Yeah. Okay, so I will say this. I think I won't I won't say it. It's necessarily true of all the Republicans, but I do believe Ron DeSantis would stand up for the things that you just listed. However, it's not the end of the inquiry. It's like telling a wife uh, or let's say a girlfriend where there's not like the commitment of a marriage. Okay, you like your guy, um, but I have another guy who would take you out to dinner, who would have a nice job, who would treat you right at night, who would be a good father. And you look at the other guy and you think, oh, yeah, I believe he would do all those things. But I like this guy. I don't know. But I like the guy I'm with. I, he's whatever. He's better looking. I, I've already had the experience with him overnight. And I, like, I'm not looking to trade this guy in. Sorry. That seems to me the more of the dynamic. It's like, but like you said, I like Ron DeSantis. I'd probably be happy with him as president. But you're loyal to Trump. You've already kind of forgive me, but like fall in love with Trump. That's how m- m- large factions of the Republican Party feel. And it's an impossible dynamic for these other GOPers. And, you know, no one's figured out how to break it. I don't know that it's breakable. Uh, I think, you know, how many Trump- people have thrown away a great relationship because they think the grass is greener? I, I yeah. certainly have. I- I've made. And so I-, I just think people have seen traditional politicians sell out and that's that's not i'm not suggesting that ron DeSantis has sell, has sold out but he's a politician and that's what they do and i like the fact that trump's not a traditional politician i like that rfk is not i like that vivek's not i like that larry yeah. elder's not <laughs> yeah no i hear you i hear you um that it is attractive though i maintain vivek should have put that jerk back on i didn't need to see that i don't need to be thinking about my possible next president without the shirt on and I will say, RFKJ, he's a little bit more in shape than Vivek. So Vivek, Vivek, come on. You need to hit those tennis balls a little bit more often if you're going to take it. Let, let me say, if Vivek were fun. here, if Vivek <laughs> were here, Megan, what he would say is, in, in, in all good spirit, it's like, hey, Megan, someone could complain. Look how good you look. That's a distraction, Megan. You should tone it down. Look how good you look. That, that that's just a distraction. I don't want. I just want to hear about politics. I don't want to be thinking if, about how good. If Megan he Curry had looked. been a little more ripped in the midsection, Jason, I would not be complaining. But Vivek did not. He was not in the shape to take off that jerk. That's it. I'm stealing the final word. We're squeezing in a break. I'm coming right back. Jason Whitlock's with us for the full show. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, so Jason, uh, the president finally was shamed into visiting Maui, the site of the worst wildfire disaster in America in the past century. And... um, didn't want to go, was vacationing in Rehoboth Beach in Delaware, then parlayed that into a vacation uh, in Lake Tahoe. And only when he started to get hit repeatedly did he decide. And after saying no comment, when asked, do you want to say anything about the deaths in Maui? No comment. Um, Finally decides he's got to go out there from Lake Tahoe. So he goes out there, arrives for a short time yesterday evening. And as we knew he was going to do, we had predicted this on the show yesterday. He once again made it about himself. You know, it's one of the lessons of grieving. When you are grieving a loss, you do not want to hear that somebody else had a loss too and therefore totally understands what you're going through. Just just say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Be kind. Be, be loving. But don't start telling your own sob stories. Just stop it, especially as a president of the United States. They don't want to hear it. He did it with the Afghanistan Gold Star families uh, when those 13 service personnel were lost. He lied about the loss that he had suffered on Bo Biden allegedly dying in Iraq. And he does it all the time. So he goes out there again. Worst wildfire losses we've seen in terms of loss of life in American history. (coughs) And he goes out there and starts talking about a house fire. He suffered in his kitchen in which no one died or was hurt in 2004. Soundbite one. I don't want to compare difficulties, but we have a little sense, Jill and I, what it's like to lose a home. Lightning struck at home on a little lake. Make a long story short, I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. (laughs) And my cat. But all kidding aside, they ran into flames, saved my wife and saved my family. Not a joke. We were insured. We did not have any problem. But being out of our home for a better part of a year was difficult. I can only imagine what it's like to lose your home. Okay. No part of that is true. Apparently, it doesn't seem like one word of that is true. Highlights from the actual 2004 Associated Press report at the time of the fire are as follows. It was a, quote, small fire that was, quote, contained to the kitchen. Quote, no one was injured. Firefighters arrived to find heavy smoke coming from the house, but were able to keep the flames from spreading beyond the kitchen. Fire Company Chief George Lamborn. Luckily, we got it pretty early. The fire was under control in 20 minutes. Nothing about running in to save the wife, uh, to even mention the damn cat and Corvette in the context of 115 people are dead with hundreds more missing, including children, is 
grossly insensitive, and he thinks he can get away with it by prefacing the remark with, I don't mean to compare tragedies, but I'm going to do exactly that. He's got cognitive issues, clearly, and and how they impact him as president is he can't be prepped. Normally, you'd have handlers come in, give him some talking points, give him some reference points, things like that. But he can't be his cognitive issues are so serious that he, he, he can't be prepped. And that's why they try to keep him away from situations and environments they can't control where he can't just be speaking from a teleprompter. And so when given an opportunity to just kind of speak off the cuff, Joe does what he's been doing probably for the entirety of his uh, political career. He just kind of freelances and exaggerates and says, you know, kind of silly things. And, and you know, he's gotten away with it. I mean, he, he, this has been his entire career. You know, you can go back even when he would probably had more cognitive skills than he does now. He's been prone to exaggeration and lying and just kind of freelancing things. And, and, and no one really cares. Well, now that he's president of the United States, you know, half the media doesn't care again. Joe Scarborough, very comfortable talking about the cult around Donald Trump. But what any Biden supporter at this point has to be a member of a cult. There's no rational person that can't see this guy has no business being the president of the United States. He, mm. he shuffles when he walks. He falls down repeatedly. And he, he when not speaking off teleprompter, even when speaking on teleprompter, he, he makes a complete and utter mess. Uh, so it's it's not surprising. And it, it's I'm not even sure if it's a big deal at this point, because we know that he's not really the president, uh, that he's just there uh, and that there are other people actually making the decisions. And, and so, well, you know, it reminds me, Jason, of the um, clearly he's been told don't compare difficulties. Don't do that. Stop doing the thing with Bo Biden. Stop bringing up your the loss of your first wife at everybody else's tragedy. Keep it about them, not about you. And he can't do it. But to me, it reminds me of, you know, elderly people who, you know how like they keep going over the same stories of their lives. They sort of have their top 10 that they tell you about a lot. And that's what he keeps doing. And this is like a little sad in any elderly person. But it's not acceptable when that elderly person is the leader of the free world and is asking for a second term in which, like a true rebel, he will only get older. <laughs> and so he did it not once, but twice yesterday at a separate stop in Maui. He then went back to the loss of the first wife and his daughter, which, of course, was a tragedy. It happened 50 years ago and is not appropriate subject matter for this visit. But here he was again yesterday in Maui. Take a listen. I got a phone call saying from my fire department and a young first responder kind of panicking. You got to come home. There's been an accident. So what happened? He said, your wife, she, she she's dead. Come home. Come home. The tractor trailer had broadsided her and, uh, uh, and killed her in a car accident along with my little daughter. And, uh, and I remember all the way down from Washington home, wondering what a lot of people here are wondering. What about my two boys? How are they? They were in the car. 
The difference between knowing somebody's gone and worrying whether they're available to come back are two different things. You know, it's amazing. He's reading. He had somebody write that. That was a planned remark. And in the New York Times, I think it was wrote it up like he often uses this story to show empathy, you know, applauding him for it. They think it's appropriate, I guess. Imagine if Joe Biden were president during Hurricane Katrina and had done something similar, the level of outrage the New York Times and the mainstream media would have. And, and th that's what I find, you know, fascinating, disappointing, uh, just unhealthy about where we're at is like, this happened in Maui, if it had happened in New Orleans or Chicago, and it happened in a inner city community and black people were affected, one, Joe Biden would probably be trying to do better and, and sound more mm -hmm. authentic and, and concerned. But also, if he made these same types of blunders, there would be people calling him one of the worst, most despicable people on the planet. And kind right, of he's West so insensitive. Yeah, he'd He's be, insensitive. You know, he don't care about Samoans. We'd be hearing from Kanye West or whatever. But, you know, this will all go away because, you know, the victims aren't the right color and the media is all in the bag for for Joe Biden. It, it, it's we just I, I look at this stuff and I look at the media reaction and I man, we we've somehow just turned this magical place into clown world. And, and I'll just circle back to, uh, I just have a belief that only Donald Trump gets us yeah. moving the well, direction away from that clown th world. This is <laughs> like, this This really could come back to haunt him because the, this level of insensitivity is likely to be repeated and it's not a good thing for him. All right, Jason, stand by, one more break. He stays with us and we'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I've been dying to get to this controversy. It it has so many people talking because we all saw the blind side. I mean, it's like millions of people have seen the blind side and enjoyed the story. Um, I confess I didn't know that it was just one long racist trope, as now I'm learning from places like Salon and Slate. Um, you're racist, too, if you enjoyed it. Um, it's about the white saviors. That's why you're not allowed to like the blind side. Uh, but as it turns out, it's not just Slate that didn't like the blind side. Michael Orr did not like the blind side, uh, the young man who's featured in it and whose life story is portrayed in both the book uh, by Michael Lewis and then the movie that was based on the book. So just as a refresher in that movie, the Tui family, which is important to note, was already very wealthy. Uh, they had made millions off of uh, fast food chains. They own like Taco Bells and some other ones um, decided to take in Michael Orr, who was from to put it charitably, a broken family uh, and was in foster care and to become his legal guardians 
Um, and the, the nature of that relationship will become relevant in the dispute that we're now going to talk about uh, and helped him. And he played football and he wound up getting drafted. He went to the NFL and um, it seemed like a loving, wonderful story up until about two minutes ago when Michael Orr came out and started ripping on the family and is now actually going after them. So he I, he also released a book this month, just just so people understand. Um, but in in the context of that as well, he's commenced a petition in probate court where uh, he is claiming that, in fact, he was tricked into signing a document, making the Tuies his conservators, not his adoptive family. And that gave them legal authority to make business deals in his name. But he complains that he never received any sort of payments for the blind side and that uh, to his chagrin and embarrassment, uh, he was lied to by the Tuies. They've enriched themselves at his expense uh, and that he wants something like hundreds of thousands of dollars from them in and maybe more, actually, that he says that they received millions of dollars and he received nothing for the rights to his story. Uh, the two are denying it, Jason, saying really none of this is true. He he was well aware of the nature of the legal relationship, that it was a conservatorship, wasn't a, an adoption. He was over 18 and that they split the monies from the blind side five ways, evenly amongst their family and that they continue to love him. And they seem rather confused about what he's doing here. So what's your take on it? Well, I think that Michael Orr's uh, own words written in his own memoir in 2011 contradict a great deal of this narrative. Uh, he And I've, I've read his 2011 book, I Beat the Odds. I've reread The Blind Side. I've rewatched the movie The Blind Side. I've watched the interviews he's done. And so in 2011, he wrote in his own book that they had entered into a conservatorship and that he didn't really care because all it meant was that he knew he was a part of their family. And so to now come out in 2023 and pretend like you're just discovering I wasn't adopted, I'm in a conservatorship, it's just a flat out lie. It, it's dishonest. And so I think a lot of this, 90% of it, 98% of it, maybe 100% of it, is all driven by the fact that Michael Orr is at a crossroads. He's been out of the NFL for five, six, seven years. Uh, he's 37 years old. Uh, I think he's written in his new memoir that just came out in the past two, two or three weeks that, you know, he struggled with job and career and depression. And so I, I think this petition is part of a publicity campaign for his new book mm -hmm. and part of a campaign that he would love to see a Netflix or Amazon Prime or some uh, movie studio out in Hollywood commission a sequel to The Blind Side, the real Blind Side, the, the new Michael Orr. And he wants to profit from that. He wants to sell his book and he wants to negotiate a, a better movie deal that makes him the, the champion and, and more of the hero of The Blind Side than he thinks the book and or a movie made of him. Uh, th this is just uh, a frustrated former athlete 
uh, doing something I believe very unethical to enrich himself and to enhance his brand. It's sad. Mm, that's all fascinating. So you're right about the book. Um, in 2011, his memoir, I Beat the Odds, he writes that the two he's told him about the legal conservatorship. And he writes, quote, since I was already over the age of 18 and considered an adult by the state of Tennessee, Sean and Leanne would be named as my, quote, legal conservators. They explained to me that it pretty much means the exact same thing as adoptive parents, but that the laws were just written in a way that took my age into account. Honestly, I didn't care what it was called. My mother was going to be at the hearing to agree that she supported the decision to have the two listed as my next of kin and legal conservators, legal conservators. Um, but now he's claiming he didn't understand that. He didn't know that. He thought he was adopted. OK, so that that's clearly not true. Um, the Tuies have hired the illegal gunslinger out in Hollywood named Marty Singer, who you hire him when, you know, you really want to fight. He represents all these celebrities who are they sue for defamation, et cetera. And he put out a statement which I'll on, on their behalf, which I'll read just in part. He writes the notion that a couple worth hundreds of millions would connive to withhold a few hundred thousand or a few thousand dollars in profit participation payments from anyone, let alone from someone they loved as a son, defies belief. In reality, the two he's opened their home to Mr. Orr, offered him structure, support, and most of all, unconditional love. They have consistently treated him like a son and one of their three children. His response was to threaten them, including saying that he would plant a negative story about them in the press unless they paid him 15 million. The evidence documented in profit participation checks and studio accounting statements is clear. <clears throat> Over the years, the Tuies have given Mr. Orr an equal cut of every penny received from the blind side. Even recently, when Mr. Orr started to threaten them about what he would do unless they paid him an eight figure windfall and as part of that shakedown effort, refused to cash the small profit checks the Tuies gave to him, they still deposited Mr. Orr's equal share into a trust account they set up for him uh, and goes on and on from there. He's defiant. He maintains these are bad people who really didn't help him as much as the movie portrayed. Here's a little bit of that uh, when he gave an interview on August 14th to the Jim Rome show, Sot 11. I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. Uh, second grade, I was doing plays and for in front of the school, and I, I think that's one of the when you go into a locker room and your teammates don't think that you can learn a playbook. You know that weighs heavy uh, on someone. Before I moved in with the family, I was an All American. That's what I want the generations behind me to see in this book right here to understand that you don't have to come have someone save you and rescue you to go out and be successful. You. I said playing right into this white savior thing, you know, like that they're not they're not my saviors. I did it all on my own. Listen, the in his book, I beat the odds. He states very clearly that he didn't like the movie, but that he liked the book, The Blind Side. And that's what made me go, OK, well, let me go reread The Blind Side to refresh my memory. And 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 so if he there's no way you can like the book, The Blind Side and then have a problem with the movie. The, the book is far more descriptive and detailed about the struggles that Michael Orr faced when he moved into the Tui's home. He's 
according to this book that he says he likes and all the provable facts. He moved into the Tui's home, I believe, in February of 2004. He was not an All-American football player at that time. He had played one year of football the year before. They played him on the defensive line that year. The coach didn't really know what to do with him. He wasn't all that aggressive. And when he moved in with them in February 2004, Michael Orr thought he was going to be a basketball player. He's six foot five, 300 and some odd pounds at that time. And, and Sean Tui, the dad, in February, he's writing small colleges, trying to get, because Sean Tui's background is basketball. He was a point guard at Ole Miss. He's trying to get small colleges to recruit this six foot five, 300 pound kid to see if he can play small college basketball. No one, the Tuies, when they moved him in permanently into their home, they weren't thinking this was some future NFL player that was going to be worth millions of dollars. They thought they had a kid who needed help just to get his life on the right path. These are all verifiable facts recovered in the blind side. This whole notion that I was an All-American before I moved in, this notion, again, he's very careful with his wordings. Oh, they said I couldn't read. Then he says, I was doing plays in the second grade. He didn't say I was reading in the second grade. He's saying I was doing plays in the second grade. If you read the blind side, the Tuies, when they moved him in, and even before they moved him in, he could not read and he'd have to do book reports. And so Sean and Leanne would spend nights reading aloud books to him so that he could do book reports. They hired a tutor, Miss Sue, to, to help catch him up. When he moved in with them, I think his GPA, according to the book, was a .06. And this is a, a junior in high school, a .06. His IQ was at an 80. The GPA, the IQ level, none of them would have qualified him to get into this Briarcrest school, this private Christian school. Look, he couldn't read. They had to read to him. They invested a lot of time, money, and energy trying to catch Michael back up because Michael had been so neglected by his mother, who was addicted to crack cocaine, had no real relationship with his father, who I believe was in and out of jail, and then eventually died, I think, when Michael was 17, 18, 19 years old. He, he had been abandoned by his father. Basically, he and his 11 siblings used to routinely come home, find the door locked because their mother was going on a crack cocaine binge with her friends. And so she would lock them out of the house. She would be someplace else on this cocaine binge. And they would they came to expect, well, this is going to happen every couple of two or three months. She's going to go on a cocaine binge and we're going to have to go sleep on a friend's floor and beg for food and all of a sudden. This young man had been so neglected that by the time... The Briarcrest Christian School, the Tuies, and other members of that school administration got a hold of him. He had been so neglected that it was a total reclamation project that the entire school and the Tuies went on out of their Christian beliefs, not out of some belief that like, oh, man, this guy's going to be an NFL and worth a bunch of money. First of all, these people already had money. Michael thought he was going to be a basketball player, wanted to be a basketball player. Sean Tui's trying to help him be a small college basketball player. It, it, again, this wasn't a money grab by the Tui's. He, he's 
much of what he's saying is just dishonest or certainly has the appearance of dishonesty based off of what he said in his own book, what was written in the Blindside book that was, I believe, published in 2006. And, and the movie is a very fair portrayal of Michael Orr. And then to pretend like, oh, I got to the NFL and guys watched the movie and thought I couldn't read and learn a playbook. No one thinks that. that that's dishonest. You were an All-American football player at Ole Miss for four years. You had to study and learn a playbook then. Let's say they did have those questions. You played in the NFL for one year with the Baltimore Ravens. Then, well, he played, and he played at a high level his rookie year. Everybody's over that hurdle. Of course he can learn a playbook. Of course. The, the, the Tui's sent that Miss Sue to Ole Miss to tutor this young man and to walk him through college for all four years, people went to great lengths to catch this kid up. This is one of the most despicable, ungrateful acts I've ever seen. Uh, it doesn't surprise me because the one mistake I would say the two he's made, but again, they have their own kids who want their daughter was the same age as Michael and they had a younger son. This kid needed major therapy and still needs major therapy to this yeah. day. The kind of neglect he experiences for first 15 years in life, well, it takes a lifetime of therapy to overcome that, and he's still struggling with it. He's a broken person who is trying to hurt the very people who helped him the most. Mm. And it's only being encouraged by these radical leftist media sites who love the see they're not white saviors narrative and which i'll talk about in one second first just a flavor of how the family feels about michael this is a sound soundbite from um sot means sound on tape for those listeners who sometimes get confused sot 10 you can hear the family talking um i think michael's in this too about him being part of the family you look at him and think of him as your son he thinks i birthed him it's gotten to the point where i think i birthed him he takes great offense if people don't think that he's, you know, a part of the family. He was Michael and I was Collins and we went about our everyday life and he was my brother and that was that. I mean, I cannot imagine life without Michael. Sean Jr. and Collins, they act like I was a part of the family. So they welcomed me with, you know, open arms. You're this white woman from one side of Memphis. Michael's a black kid from the other side of town. Were you conscious of that, though, when you're meeting this kid and you're beginning to befriend him? I mean, you, had you done anything like this before? It had nothing to do with what color Michael was or how big he was. He was a child that had a need and it needed to be filled. You said it took a year before he really gave you a big hug or serious hug? Well, I hugged him a lot. I'm real touchy-feely. I go to each child's room every night and kiss them goodnight and hug them. And well, I did that just to Michael like I did the other two. And um, it was just kind of not much of a response for a long time. And then finally, one night, it was just this random, you know, I said, night, honey, love you, see you in the morning. And I got a love you too. And I went outside the door and I was like, wow. I said, we have moved mountains. Mm. What a difference a decade makes. The messaging from Michael Orr very different than he participated in in that interview with Deborah Roberts. Listen, these people who I'm sure are flawed, like all of us, uh, have some sincere Christian beliefs. The, the, the other thing, that this whole white savior thing that the media has concocted, before 
they ever met Michael Orr. The wife had graduated from this Briarcrest Christian School. I think she was in the first graduating class, maybe in 1978. My memory may be a little bit fuzzy. Uh, but the father was a volunteer basketball coach who made it a point long before Michael Orr to connect with any of the black kids that came to Briarcrest, particularly if they were poor. That was what he was known for. And it's because of his whole worldview and his basketball experience at Old Miss and growing up, he grew up poor, working class in New Orleans. He had all kinds of black friends. And, and so it was part of his growing up poor, that was part of his connection to Michael is he felt like he could relate and he wanted to provide uh, Michael the opportunities that he himself, Sean was denied as, as a young person, but he had done this with other kids at Briarcrest, not moved them in, but have helped them uh, before Michael Orr ever got on their radar. Also, I mean, this is what really tears me up about the way the media is portraying this story. The, his wife grew up, Leanne Tui grew up in a very racist home. She admits that her father was a racist. She's walking down, the father's walking her down the aisle at her wedding. And all of Sean's black friends are there. And the father says to her, as he's walking her down the aisle, why are all these niggers here? Oh my God. That's the where she comes from. And Sean, being a Christian and a believer, gave her a completely different worldview on race than what her father and family had given her. And it became a part of their mission to be different than perhaps other people in Mississippi, what, what she grew up with. And she embraced that mentality, saw Michael and took Michael into her home as, as her own child and tried to give this young boy the love that his... Michael Orr writes in his own book that his mother not once in life ever told him she loved him. Not once. Mm -hmm. That no, he had 11 siblings. They never told each other they loved each other. This is in his own book. This family, out of their sincere Christian beliefs, tried to provide that love and support for him. And now they're being demonized and we're turning this into a negative story. And, and, and it's almost like white people, rich white people, they can't win either way. They see a Michael Orr, don't, don't be involved with him. That's, that's the white savior syndrome. If they do get involved with him, uh, you know, then they can be ripped and criticized because they don't do everything perfect. This is crazy. The messaging from the media and from what Michael Orr is doing is like telling wealthy people, regardless of color, but particularly if you're white, do not get involved. It's not worth the risk. It can all be turned and used against you. Look what happened to Colin Kaepernick and, and, and the white couple that did adopt him and the movie he put out where he's taking pot shots at them. These young people have been so radicalized by social media and, and so academia that, that you got to find your victimhood. You got to demonize white people. It is despicable and outrageous. The way this story has been covered, the way these people have been demonized. And that's not me saying they're perfect. I'm sure they have flaws. But could you imagine? You've got a 17-year-old daughter 
and you're bringing an unraised six foot five, 300 pound young boy into your house. It doesn't matter what color he's in. Right. If I got a 17 year old daughter. I'm not bringing an unraised eight. I'm not even, a, I'm not bringing any boy that's not my son <laughs> into my house with my 17 year old daughter, who's a cheerleader. It's just not happening. These people made great sacrifice, took great risk, and it's all being a dump being taken on it so we can play some social media, political, racial game that leads to just destruction and divisiveness. It's despicable. Gosh, you're so you're so articulate about this issue. I, as I hear you espouse the thoughts, I'm like, yes, 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 this is all what's bothering me about it. But I wasn't able to put it into words. The um, it reminded me, by the way, Matt Walsh had a good tweet on it, too. Apropos of what you just said, he wrote after eight years of Barack Obama and all those BLM riots and George Floyd funerals, we've arrived at this moral guidance. Let the black teenager on the side of the road freeze to death. Don't help him or you're a racist. And uh, and some of the media highlights I'll, I'll offer to the audience just to underscore it. This is from an MSNBC op ed. The Blind Side isn't the only film that gets things wrong. All white savior movies do. They rip on, for example, Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, this is they say the the Orr's lawsuit is an indictment of sorts against the Tuies. It is just as much an indictment of movie audiences that over and over again lap up stories about white people saving some downtrodden black person or some downtrodden group of black people. The white public craves feel good stories that portray them as heroes more than accurate stories that portray black people as complete and complex human beings. They're dehumanizing is what they're they're saying. Then they go on to say it's not just the white savior films that are problematic, but the ones that but they can also double, quote, as the, quote, magical Negro flick where the black character, such as the one Michael Clark Duncan played in The Green Mile or the one Whoopi Goldberg played in Ghost, is there to help white characters become the best versions of themselves. That's not OK either. Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost as somebody who could help the grieving widow communicate with her dead husband. That's somehow racist, too. Uh, NPR adds the blindside drama just proves the cheap, meaningless hope of white savior films. Forbes, what the blindside lawsuit teaches us about allyship and white saviorism. Of course, let's not forget Robin D'Angelo in white fragility, excoriating this particular film, the blindside, as fundamentally and insidiously anti-black. Little did they know, Jason? But this, I mean, maybe some of this got in Michael Orr's head, too. You know, maybe he's been influenced by this group. Of course. Of, of course it has. And and listen, he, here's the mistake that Michael Orr is making. And, and obviously the media is making this. Like, the blind side isn't a story simply about Michael Orr. The, <laughs> Sean and Leanne, too, it's about their life, too. It's a group of people. They're kids. It's about their life, too. Michael Orr thinks that movie is only about him, and it's not. And it, it, it was never intended to be just about him. It was about a group of people and how their lives collapsed and, and, and ended up helping Michael Orr. But, but the movie does not paint Michael Orr in a bad light. 
it, it paints him in a realistic light. He was a kid in need of a lot of help who accepted that help and ran with that help. But, but to sit here and to pretend like there is no movie without Michael Orr overlooks the fact there is no movie without Sean and Leanne Tui. Because if without Sean and Leanne Tui, this book may be named, renamed The Green Mom. Because the stats on what happens to kids that are abandoned and treated the way that Michael Orr is, they end up in jail or dead. And so you remove the Tuies, and it's a very different story. It, it, it may be Shawshank Redemption. Who knows? And, and Michael Orr knows that because he wrote it in his own book, I Beat the Odds. It, the other thing that's really infuriating is, is Michael's contention like, oh, I didn't financially benefit. Or, and basically what he's saying is, I don't like the deal they cut. You know, I should have made more money off this movie. That's basically his argument. And, and people are going with that. Well, here's what they're overlooking. Michael Lewis, who wrote the book, went to high school with Sean Tui. They're lifelong friends. There would be no book written about Michael Orr or The Blind Side. And, and the, the Blind Side book wasn't solely about Michael Orr. It was an analysis of the NFL and left tackle position. Michael and the Tuis were the human interest part of the book. But anyway, it doesn't happen without Sean Tui's relationship without, with Michael Lewis. Fox, 20th Century Fox, declined to make, they bought the movie and then declined to make it. You know who made the movie? Hmm. Sean Tui's next door neighbor, Fred Smith, the CEO and founder of FedEx. They talked him. In, so it's a very small production company that wow. made The Blind Side. And so Sean Tui's high school buddy, Michael Lewis wrote the book, and his next door neighbor financed the movie. No one knew that the movie was going to be a success. This was a great risk. That's no one, Michael Lewis didn't get rich off of it. No one did. Everybody took a little small percentage just in case. Megan, you and I both know, and most people with common sense know, most movies don't, no matter how good they are, they, they don't, don't make want the money. And yeah. so there is no great, oh, I'm going to get rich. Uh, that's why all these writers are on strike right now because you know the the movie companies if it makes it they make most of the money. There was no great deal for Michael Orr to cut or the Tuies to cut based on because everybody knew this movie was going to be a success. This was Sean Tui using his relationships to to help get a book written and a movie made and his family including Michael, got to participate in a little bit of the financial success of it. But it, it just doesn't happen without the twoies. None of it. The tutors that taught Michael to read, that got him through college, got him through high school. The book doesn't get written. The movie doesn't get made. But Michael Orr is sitting around there saying, look what I did. I'm not getting enough credit. This was all about me. And the movie should have been all about me and the money should have been made by me. And let's ignore the fact that other people, the two, just as important, if not more important in this story. But we're all racist or I'm a sellout for not thinking this is solely about Michael Orr. It's crazy. They're, they're, as I mentioned, Sandra Bullock won the Oscar for portraying Leanne Tui in 2010. I think we've got that video. And there, I saw an article online. You got another great point she, on that too. 
Yeah, okay, okay so she's getting blowback for playing the character now. Some people saying she should give back the Oscar. Now, Sandra Bullock is mourning the, the recent death of her partner um, who died young. It's just need this nonsense. This is bullshit. Michelle Pfeiffer, she's listed as one of the bad people because she started in started in Dangerous Minds. That was about a white teacher she, who she played teaching African-American and Hispanic-American teenagers in, in his inner city high school. They also in the MSNBC uh, piece rip on cool runnings, loosely based based on the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team where black Jamaicans want to form a national bobsled team and are helped by <gasps> A white former bobsledder play played by John Candy. They even rip on To Kill a Mockingbird, where a white attorney played by uh, Gregory Peck defends a black man falsely accused of rape. He loses the case, but is applauded by his noble effort. This is actually the wiki list of white savior movies uh, just referenced in MSNBC's piece. So there's no winning, right? Sandra Bullock, she's racist. Michelle Pfeiffer is a racist. I guess uh, Gregory Peck is a racist. Why? Because they either uh, helped black people or decided to portray white people who helped black people. The Sandra Bullock thing is insensitive and mean and absurd. All of it is absurd, Jason. Yeah, Atticus Finch, he's evil as well for helping Tom Roberts and I. I've, I've read To Kill a Bockingbird probably five times. But <laughs> anyway, as it relates to Sandra Bullock, and this is what Michael Orr doesn't get and the people that are caping up for him don't get. So in the movie, Michael Orr is a 17, 18-year-old, 6'5", 345-pound kid. And he's wondering why he's not the biggest superstar of this movie. Sandra Bullock plays Leanne Tui. The reason why you can get a mega star like Sandra Bullock to play Leanne Tui because it's a grown woman and Leanne Tui was attractive and so they got an attractive Hollywood actress, superstar to play her role. That's why her role is more iconic. How many six foot five, 340 pound black actors are there out in Hollywood? Or Let's say they don't have to be six, just six foot one, 300 pound actors out in Hollywood who could play an 18 year old and make that character the iconic character of the movie. It's just the facts dictate how the movie plays out. They wanted it fronted by a major star. One of the reasons 20th Century Fox didn't do it is because Julia Roberts turned down the lead role and they felt like, well, without Julia Roberts, are we sure the movie can? Fred Smith and, you know, that finance, I think it's Alcon, the small comp production company that finance. They got Sandra Bullock, nice star. She plays this iconic role, makes her career. She wins an Oscar. There was no 300-pound Black actor that was going to take Michael Orr's role. I guess, you know, they could have got found the male version of Precious. And... <laughs> 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 It's just comical. The, the, the lack of common sense, the, the, the lack of understanding of how Hollywood works, the movie industry works, how do you become a star and all that. It's just all thrown out the window because Michael Orr is black and there's some white people that need to be demonized and we can throw all the facts out the window. And, and it's, it's a damn shame. Uh, what this movie is our new normal. It's, it's the way now white women are being demonized. If they marry a black man like that's 
that's just you working out your white supremacy. Okay, what what if I just fell in love with a black man? Uh, what if I'm not a white supremacist? What if I just love this black man? No, that's your white supremacy. The white couples who adopt black children like Amy Coney Barrett, remember during her confirmation hearing, and you had Ibram X. Kendi suggesting this is part of white colonization. She saved two kids from Haiti uh, and orphanages. No, white supremacy, twoies. Same Sandra Bullock, like I forget it. It's just it's so jumped the shark in terms of its absurdity. And thank you for for putting into words what a lot of us have been feeling, but are not are less able to articulate. Well done, sir. Stand by much more with the one and only Jason Whitlock right after this. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So, Jason, you tweeted something out about the NFL that caught my eye, even though, you know, I don't follow sports. This was interesting. Apparently, there was an injury on the field um, in Green Bay, Wisconsin that led to the shutdown of the game. They terminated the game early, which is incredibly rare. And you had a a strong reaction to it. Here's your tweet. Football died Saturday night in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when New England Patriots defensive back Isaiah Bolden collided with a teammate, laid motionless on the ground and was carted off the field. Minutes later, the NFL made the call to end the game. Football's death was not acute. It was a slow, painful death that paralleled the rise of American feminism and the revolt against all things masculine. It's really a damn shame. Um, I thought it was interesting because my first reaction, maybe because I'm a soft lady, was, oh, no, the guy got hurt. They had to shut the game down. He was that hurt. What happened? But then I kept reading and found out he's already out of the hospital. It doesn't sound like he was all that hurt. Why did they shut the game down and explain your thinking on it. Well, it's a new normal that we're establishing uh, in professional football and just football in general. Uh, And this is sent DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bill player that had to have CPR performed on on the field during a Monday night football game last season. They ended up canceling that game. And now we're here in a new season, preseason game, Megan, I'm a former college football player. I've covered football my entire life. These types of injuries that Isaiah Bolden suffered, commonplace in football, we've been continuing with games for 70, 80 years, despite injuries like that. There was an NFL football player that died on the field, and the game went on. Uh, oh, but wow. now we're in this new era of choosing safety over everything that that and again that that's i don't mean this to be diminishing or or condescending or a negative statement 
but I get why women choose safety. And it, it's, it's, I think it's an instinctive thing. When you have a womb, when a child develops inside you, it, 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 you crave safety more than taking risk, more than freedom. And so men have always been more risk-taking and, and played fast and loose with our lives. That's, we were roughnecks that fell off buildings, building skyscrapers, you know, evil Knievel. When I was a kid, I used to, you know, jump things, cars and fountains on a motorcycle and just do all kinds of silly things. Men take risks. And that had been our nature. As the country has become more feminized and more matriarchal, men are now adverse to risk. And we're starting to choose safety at all costs. And so they've normalized something in football now where, oh, my God, there's a bad injury on the field. We better shut this down. No one can play. This is too. And, and you know, guys are making millions upon millions of dollars for playing this game. They know the risk of the game. They just don't want to take the risk or suffer the consequences of that risk when guys used to do it all the time. In a preseason game 45 years ago, it's one of the most devastating hits in NFL history. A New England Patriot wide receiver, Daryl Stingley, got hit by an Oakland Raiders safety, Jack Tatum, and was paralyzed. The game continued, and it was a wow. preseason game. And <laughs> I'm not saying this is right, but the, the Patriots got on an airplane and were ready to fly home while Daryl Stingley was still in the hospital. And the opposing coach, John Madden, you know, called them and hunted them down. It's like, hey, man, before y'all leave, somebody better come over here and check on your player, Daryl Stingley, in the hospital because John Madden was there. I'm not saying that's – but I'm just telling you, that's what the mentality of football used to be. And now we're adopting a softer, safety-first mentality that's not healthy. It, it, it's It's not – what men are supposed to do. And it's a reflection of a society that has become very secular. And so when you become secular and you have no idea what happens to you in the afterlife, you value this life more than you do uh, life with God, you now develop an unnatural fear of death or an unhealthy fear of death that will stop you again. This current mentality, if there was a civil war over slavery, most men would not participate. If, if, if we were back with Jim Crow and laws on the books that uh, penalize black people, most men wouldn't make take the kind of risk, protest, face police dogs, do all the things that, that they did to overcome that. That there's a reason why our nature to take risk is actually a healthy thing and needs to be right. protected because that's how we correct a lot of our problems by it's so hard I have to say as a mother of you know two boys and a girl I I know this is true and I know that I should be encouraging them to take risks you know I I feel the need to say sort of reasonable risks I don't want you know I don't want crazy risks taken but it's so hard, right? Because especially when they're little, my, my boys are uh, 13 and 10. All you want to do is protect them. Every instinct, every part of your body is protect, protect, protect. Stay in the bike lane. Get over there. Get, get, get toward the sidewalk. Be careful. Be careful on your dive into that pool. You know, like 
everything. That's like our whole job is to keep them well. And in our family, sure enough, my husband is more like, they're fine. Relax. You can do it. You know, and I do think that's the way nature intended it. Like, I think we're both biologically programmed to be a little bit more like that, at least when it comes to our children. And yet you're right. Society is moving way more toward the protect, protect, protect safe space as opposed to take risks, assess, you know, take smart risk. You don't be an idiot. Um, don't drive drunk. Don't, you know, whatever. But I, I see what you're saying. I don't know what to do. I feel like. Do we need now as women to overcorrect, to like check our instincts, to be the safety monitors? Like, do we need to be more well, like no, get out there into the traffic? Like, what, What's the answer? The problem is not you guys shouldn't do anything. Men just need to be men and, and men need to, you know, draw some boundaries here in terms of like and just have an understanding of, again, we would have never ended slavery in this current mentality. And, and we wouldn't go off and storm the beaches of Normandy. We wouldn't do many of the heroic things that we wouldn't get up on skyscrapers and fall to our, de our deaths in, in search of progress and things like that because everybody's afraid to die. And, and, and there's just, men used to understand the consequences of progress. And so I don't think people under fully grasp, like the guys that went off to war in the civil war and did everything to sign up to participate in that war, they knew that death was a real possibility and, and perhaps even likely or some type of injury. But, but we were willing to do that to have that progress happen. And so when you start creating a culture where everything is evaluated about, well, how safe is it going to be? Is, is there any risk? Of, well, let's don't do it. It's too risky. It's too, and, and so it, it's, it's a byproduct of, you know, and, and we had a very patriarchal culture where uh, men, you know, argued amongst themselves and kind of decided, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. And, and in the name of progress, we've invited everyone into the discussion. And uh, in the name of progress, we're going to take steps backwards. And, and many of the things that we're experiencing right now, the things we've been talking about with uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all the reverse racism, and all it's men won't stand up and be leaders and say, you know what, I'm not going for this. This, this, this diversity, equity, inclusion goes against merit and it's unhealthy for our country because there are consequences. If you take that type of stance, you'll likely get run out of your job, and and we're just not in that type of mentality right now. Yeah, Everything no, it's, it's one thing to have female voices at the table. It's another thing to accept the feminization of men. That's the word that is not what we wanted and not what men should be allowing and not. I mean, I don't think women, most women don't want that. Maybe the far lefties do. But I see your your point that if you look at if you zoom out to the larger culture in America, it's happening. It's interesting that, that what, what an interesting way in the we shut down the Boy Scouts. I mean, men can't even really kind of gather together, and women can, and like, and they want to Hello. turn the whole thing. Look at my shirt. They, we can't even get into our locker rooms and our bathrooms without the men yes. in there these days. Yes, and that's just not the way it's supposed to be.
you know, there are there needs to be spaces where the genders can gather up and, you know, sororities and fraternities are good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that I, know, I agree with you. Boys and girls locker rooms are good. And and there, there's just a roughness that has to be allowed if you want to be the leader of the free world. If you want to uh, continue with Joe Biden type leadership, we're just going to continue to pretend that there's no differences between men and women. And we're going to, because China's not doing these things. Russia's not doing these things that we're doing. They're, they're not pretending. Oh, no, can, can I tell you, so we, we had a really interesting guest on yesterday who's an expert on, uh, he has a book called Digital Madness. And he made the point in it that um, if you ask the average American teenager what he or she wants to be when they grow up, you'll get the majority, I think, saying a YouTube star. If you ask the same of the Chinese children, they say an astronaut. What are we doing, Jason? It's very safe being a YouTube star. Going into space is dangerous. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're just, we're choosing the easy path every time. Our, our, our kids are too soft. We're too soft. The whole thing. We don't understand that iron sharpens iron. And that, again, as it relates to football, and I grew up, playing football, and that's how I got to college. That's a great iron sharpening process that I needed. I injured a knee, uh, torn ACL. There's a price to play. There's a guarantee if you play football long enough, you're going to get injured. But it's all worth it. And not all of my experiences in football were great. I didn't get along with my coaches all the time. Felt like sometimes they treated me unfairly. Felt like I was too lazy in college and didn't take advantage of my opportunities. But overall, it was a great learning experience that helped me develop as a man. And, and people need to let that process play out. But again, it's like we're on this hunt. Let's remove all unfairness. Let's remove anything that's difficult. Let's remove anything that's high risk. Let, let, and again, they so dramatically changed all the rules in football. It's not the same game. It, 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 it's, I, it's, I've, ne I've never heard somebody say it so succinctly. I mean, I, I've talked many times about running to the danger, right? Like, don't be afraid. Don't go to the safe space. I've never heard somebody say it so succinctly. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. I want a T-shirt that that reads iron sharpens iron. Jason Whitlock, uh, stick around. He stays with us. He's agreed to give us a few uh, extra minutes. And it's a good thing because I've got to ask him about Kim Kardashian. He's upset. And I'll show you the video that has him upset. And I'm upset, too. All right. So, Jason, you may have heard that Sage Steele now former ESPN anchor, came on the show last week. And this is her first public comment on her separation from ESPN and on ESPN strong arming her into apologizing. Her alleged sin was she had gone on the Jay Cutler podcast, which was apparently short lived. Uh, he was a former NFL star. And she said a couple of things. She criticized the vaccine mandate at ESPN, saying she thought it was sick that they were forcing people to get it, though she did get it. She said that um, she did not appreciate some of the young women going into locker rooms scantily clad as sports reporters and then acting shocked that they experienced alleged sexism or looks by the players. 
And she said that she, as a biracial woman, her mom's white, her dad's black, she calls herself biracial and that she didn't totally understand why Barack Obama called himself black when his black father really didn't raise him. His white mother did. But you do you. I'm going to do me is what she said on the on the podcast. And um, she this was in the context of her telling the, the, the biracial stuff. She was referencing back to an appearance she had on The View where Barbara Walters was really coming at her saying, why don't you call yourself black? Why do you call yourself biracial? And she was like, I'm I'm half white. I'm half black. That's biracial. Pretty sure my mom was there when I was born. And I just I don't understand when I see a box that makes me say, are you black or are you white? It's kind of confusing. I'm, I'm really kind of not either. And I am both. Anyway, that's the context in which Barack Obama came up. ESPN made her apologize. So horrid were those remarks. They forced you to apologize. Here's what she said on the show. I did not want to apologize. I fought and I fought and I begged and I screamed. And I was told that if I want to keep my job, I have to apologize. And I need my job. And I love my job, Megan. I loved it, but I needed it as well. And um, right. they knew that. They knew that. So um, I apologize. And I think that I, I thought that that was going to be the end of it because that's what I was told. Um, but when it continued and there were events taken away, events I'd worked years to get. Um, and I was just told, you know, hey, you uh, we need a little more time. Bit by bit, they started taking opportunities away from her. They, quote, sidelined her and effectively started destroying her career. And to her credit, she sued. They settled the lawsuit last week. Your thoughts on what's happened to ESPN and what they did to Sage Steele? I, I think what happened with Sage Steele is really complicated. But I and so I think it's different. It's a pie and 20 percent is this, 30 percent is this. And what those percentages are, someone else, I have to be the judge. But obviously, uh, ESPN has a uh, commitment to a liberal worldview and is far more comfortable with their hosts that are in support of liberal ideology. And so that's part of what happened to Sage Steele. I, I think that uh, being a woman in, in that environment is part of what happened to Sage Steele because I think many of the uh, black women at ESPN, from Anel Duncan to a Jamel Hill to others, uh, tried to undercut and, and did effectively undercut Sage Steele and try to question her blackness and whether or not she was the right type of representative uh, for black viewers. Uh, I think that played a role. I think that uh, having been hired and promoted under John Skipper, the previous president of ESPN, I, I think played a role. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, they don't know how to handle someone like Sage Steele, who has a, a more authentic view of herself than a lot of uh, Black people on television. Because again, Sage Steele is 1,000% biracial. The only people 
that don't think she's biracial are racist people because there was a racist tradition started in slavery. If you have one drop of black blood, you're black. And so the modern day liberals have adopted all the viewpoints and, and talking points and beliefs of old school racists. And so, oh, Barbara Walters, white liberal, racist. Oh, you got one drop of black blood. Why aren't you saying you're black? Because that's what racist white people have thought since the 1700s. And, and so Sage Steele being authentic, Tiger Woods, paid a momentary cost because he wouldn't deny his mixed heritage. Uh, but, you know, I don't blame Sage Steele. Barack Obama certainly should have claimed his white heritage. He had no relationship with his black father. Uh, his grandparents, his white grandparents actually raised him in Hawaii. Barack Obama grew up what the liberals would call very stereotypically white. Uh, but in order to advance politically, he has to pretend that, you know, he's Jay-Z or the stereotypical black kid from around the way. And, you know, he, he goes out and seeks a marriage with uh, a black woman to validate his his blackness. And again, I'm not, maybe he and Michelle just fell in love, but everything I read, Barack Obama, the, the, the women that he did like were white. Uh, the women that he dated were white until he decided, hey, I'm gonna be a politician and I need a, a black wife to do that. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I the other aspect that, you know, at some point I'll probably talk to uh, Sage myself, and this is related to John Skipper. ESPN is is cutting back salaries, and Sage still was highly paid. And when you're in the crosshairs at an ESPN or Andy's networks, and you're highly paid, and they can't say that, hey, you're highly paid because you drive this much revenue or this much ratings. They're they're getting rid of a lot of people over at ESPN who were overpaid by John Skipper uh, and and a part of a system that was set up in commonplace uh, at ESPN and Fox Sports and across sports media that in order to have diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're going to overpay people. We're going to pay them far more than the value they bring because we're making these statements. And so it's I funny think you say that because she was saying all these DEI programs, the first thing she always wants to see is diversity of thought. And that's that is what Sage Steele brings. She's diverse on a number of levels, but it was her diversity of thought that they objected to because there's a long list of ESPN anchors who have taken political positions and said really incendiary things which were completely tolerated and not punished and did not lead to a separation. Um, there's no because, but they were aligned with the leftist view. There's no question if she was aligned with the leftist view, she would be a superstar at ESPN. She would be Malika right? Andrews. There, right. there's, there's no question about that. They've got some young woman, 27 years old, Malika Andrews, that is mixed. She's half white Jew, half black, uh, pretends to be a leftist, you know, or toes that leftist line. And now she's the greatest thing since life's bread. And they're giving her all kinds of opportunities. That was all on the table for Sage Steele. And that is where I got hats off to her. We talk about courage. We talk about standing on convictions. And it's not a man or a woman thing. Sage Steele, I mean, a woman 
who was willing to pay the price for standing on her values and principles. And I say hats off to her. It, it's it's what makes me have a great deal of respect for Sage. But th there there were, are a lot of factors that impacted you know Sage Steele's career at ESPN. Um, it, it you know Disney. Running ESPN has been a yeah. travesty and a tragedy. I got to say this. Um, she also told us this, this crazy story as a follow up to that view appearance where Barbara Walters was asking her about her race. I mean, it's not like inappropriate anyway. Like what, what business was any of that of Barbara Walters? She told us a story um, on the show. This is last Thursday of Barbara Walters elbowing her in the stomach at the I don't know, the water fountain. I can't remember exactly the, the details, but elbowing her in the stomach. Green room. Aggressive. In the green room. In the green room, thank you. And that Whoopi Goldberg was a witness to it. So this went everywhere. It made tons of news. And to the point where Barbara Walters, who, you know, passed, her representative, I guess is still around, put out a statement saying this is impossible to believe. Uh, and it doesn't doesn't sound true. And meanwhile, I'm like, well, I have a live person right here who says it is true and that it 100 percent happened. And the eyewitness, Whoopi Goldberg, has not come out to say it's not true, uh, which is kind of interesting. I mean, if you're Barbara Walters representative, you could easily just go to Whoopi and say, would you please put out a statement saying that this is bullshit? She claims you were a witness. No, it hasn't happened. So anyway, I found that very interesting. But listen, I want to move on to Kim Kardashian because you mentioned um, overpaid, overpaid women uh, in front of the camera. Hello, Kim Kardashian Segway. She I can't stand her for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I feel like this incident, which somehow I missed. God bless you for finding this embodies exactly why I can't stand this woman. It's not personal. I don't think she's evil. I just hate what she represents. So before I play the clip from their show, do you want to set it up so that the audience knows that what we're going to see that that you saw that upset you about her at the DMV? Well, she's got two stylists with her. Uh, they basically shut down the DMV or leave it open late for her. And she has them take two or three pictures. She's not satisfied with the first one. And I, I'm just like, this is a mental illness to be this obsessed with your driver's license photo and your appearance at all times. And then when you think about it, it's like, how often does Kim Kardashian drive? I mean, yeah. she's a billionaire. She gets driven around and everywhere. Part of this is gimmick for her, the Kardashians TV show or something that's on Hulu or whatever. But I just, this sort of obsession with your looks is a mental illness. And and I'm not someone that's going to sit here and argue and say Kim Kardashian's not attractive because she is attractive. But this level of obsession, uh, she's a very, her spirit, her mentality is very unattractive. And, you know, I looked at that and I said, they, people want to say Kanye's nuts. She's just as nuts. <laughs> All right, wait, let's let's let not keep people in suspense any longer. Let's see Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian's all important license photo. OK, hold on. Wait till I'm not smiling. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm like. 
Okay, hold on. God. Okay, oh no God. wrinkles, no. No Miles. Wrinkles. Come on, guys, we all need to approve this. Mm. Can we try again? Maybe if you, can you come out a bit more? So it's not so cropped? Not so, yeah. Yeah, this is one? there any way to oh save God. this, do another, and have them side by side? No. Really? This one's good. It looks exactly the same as the other one. <laughs> no. Well, you killed it. She nailed it. We've worked with many photographers along the time, Blanca, and you, you got the shot. <laughs> I wouldn't say we normally get it. In two in, shots? Yeah. We trusted our instincts. First is the worst, second is the best. Oh, my God. That is stomach turning. She's, she's all about appearances. That's the only thing that matters to her. That's it. Even her billion dollar brand is all about sucking in your fat so you can look better. That's that's her contribution to the world. I'm not saying it's bad, but that's where she's making her money, looking at herself and encouraging young girls of America and around the world to look at themselves and have other people look at them instead of listen to them. Because when you listen for 20 seconds, you're revolted at the banal emptiness that is the shell of that woman. She's like an athlete in terms of, you know, athletes are paid because of their physicality and they ignore uh, their intellectual evolution. And and so she's the same thing. She she's vapid, and and I, I just it is a dangerous message to send to young girls, and I'm and and the fact that we've placed her on this pedestal and she's you know worth billions of dollars and has access to U.S. presidents and uh, is considered one of the most successful and powerful people in America. That's a dangerous message to young women and young girls, um, but it's it's where we're at. And and I, I just <laughs> I, I told a story on my show yesterday about I was I was at a pool party in Vegas years ago, and my cabana was next door to Kim Kardashian's cabana, and so I can authentically say, having stood next to her, br very brief conversation, she's a beautiful woman, or she certainly was then. But if it takes that level of obsession for her to be a beautiful woman, I, I want no parts of that. Just, just run. Mm -hmm. I'd rather have, you know, a much less attractive woman who actually has a head on her shoulders than mm -hmm. Kim Kardashian. Yeah, it, it, it's not totally dissimilar from the conversation we had about Michael Orr. Where was the parent? If my daughter ever made such a deal about getting her driver's license photo or her school photo, I'd say, knock it off. This is ridiculous. I want to make sure you look neat. Looking nice is fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look attractive. Uh, but this is an obsession. This is bizarre. Get in front of the camera and smile, for God's sake. Stop it. Knock it off. You need a parent to say you're being absurd. And she didn't have that. Uh, she had a mother who fed her to the wolves, who helped her, according to the sex partner featured in the sex tape, um, make the tape and put it out there for all to see and exploited her from the cradle. So this is what you wind up with. It's not entirely her fault. But now that she's an adult, she has to take responsibility. And her fake law degree, which she didn't get, was all just cover to try to make herself seem like she was making an effort to be an intellectual, which she's not and never will be. Uh, she's about vapid vanity. And I object on so many different levels.
Jason Whitlock, you're the opposite of that. You are not object. You are not about objective, uh, vapid vanity. You're all substance and have given us so many different angles to think about in these stories. One of the many reasons. Yeah, I've never struggled with beauty, so I haven't. No, that's not what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) See, Blanca wouldn't even have to try with you. Blanca would be like, oh, it's Jason. I'm good. I know he's the camera loves him. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thank you, Megan. All right. See you again soon. Go find Jason's show Fearless on Blaze TV, on YouTube and all podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 